You are listening to the Lazy Equity Podcast, brought to you by Bobby Hayeri and Darren Venter, founders of the investors agency and Debar. With over 20 years experience in real estate between them and having bought hundreds, if not thousands of properties around the country, you are in the right place to learn all things property. This podcast is designed to educate and empower everyday Aussies to take control of their future through property. Hi guys, Bobby here and welcome to the episode 7 of the Lazy Equity Podcast. On today's show, I'm super excited to have a very special guest. He's a multiple business owner, a borderless investor. He's been featured on the Australian Financial Review, Daily Mail, renovating for profit, and his business has been a finalist in the Rising Star Award within the Specialist Finance Group. Jai from JD Capital, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks, Bobby. That's a very great introduction. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hey, you'll have to uh, you'll have to live up to the expectations now. <laughs> I'm actually really excited because this is my first time sitting in person doing a, a in-person podcast. The previous podcast has always been online, so this is a really different experience and love the office. Mate, thank you very much. Yeah, we, we much prefer uh, much prefer doing it face-to-face. I've done a few via Zoom, and I guess the good thing about that is you can sort of broaden your network. You can, you can go out to the whole of Australia or the whole world. But doing it in person, you know, it's a lot more personable, you know, talking over each other and, you know, getting internet lag and all that stuff. So thanks for coming in. Yeah, no worries. Mate, so today I wanted to touch on, look, we'll touch on you uh, you and you who you are personally and so forth. But just to give the listeners a quick, very brief rundown, uh, obviously I wanted to touch on, as you are an investor, I wanted to touch on um, investing in the current climate. Also, all things to do with building your portfolio past sort of one or two properties. Uh, I know finance is is the biggest thing you need to do that. So we're going to talk about interest rates, how to build your portfolio using different lenders and just touch on all the relevant topics. You cool with that? Yeah, that's good. Let's go. Perfect. Sounds good, mate. So why don't we touch on yourself personally before we get into the business side of things? Yeah, that's a great start. So I'm your average guy from Sydney. I actually grew up in the Northern Beaches. My family are originally from Taiwan, so they're first-generation migrants to Australia And if I kind of just wind back and look at our money story, when I grew up as a kid, money was a little bit challenging. Like I could see my parents working really hard. Mum and dad were both working uh, full time and me and my brother were raised in Sydney and their incomes were fairly low, like, you know, not very high incomes. I I could see, you know, friends and family friends, they were doing a lot better than us. So I always, I always wondered as a kid, why are some families better off and what's different about them? And so as a kid, you know, money was always kind of like a taboo subject. Between the family, was it? Yeah, between the family and also I guess between people overall. Like you don't really talk too much about money or investing, right? Yeah. So as a kid, that kind of led me to think more about, well, how do I guess the wealthy people and how do the rich people end up where they are? And so I've always wondered about how, how does the economy you know, economic work in terms of growing your wealth and, and how do you ex- uh, succeed in that in that aspect. So I guess for me, property then became a, a wealth creation tool yeah. because I was exposed to that through other people. So throughout my investing journey, I started talking to other investors and found out that people were able to leverage through property. Yeah. And I then realized saving your way to wealth is actually a really slow way to build wealth because- I remember very clearly, you know, each year the max I'd be able to save was probably like ten to twenty thousand. I felt that was a really, really good success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then when you got inflation sitting at six or seven percent, it makes it even harder, right? Yeah. Then you realize, oh, you probably got to save like 
you know, 20, 30 years for you to have, you know, hundred thousand dollars in the, in the bank account. And yeah. it's just, it's just mind blowing at, at how slow it is to actually build significant amount of wealth through this traditional saving method. So I was naturally very curious around how do you get into property investing? Then a couple of years ago, there was a lot of property seminars in person that, that were available. Yeah. So I was going to a lot of those seminars, understanding how people were able to build their property portfolios. Yeah. And then that created a whole new world, you know, okay. into the whole investing space. And how long ago was that with the, with the seminars? They were probably going back into two, early 2010, 2012. I remember there was a lot of property shows and podcasts. It was all way before covid so there was a lot of in-person events yep, and uh, I guess a lot of industry thought speakers as well. Yep. And that's how I came across the Cherie Barber Renovating for Profit course as well, which I did a couple of years ago. Okay. Yeah. And I know you're quite comfortable to talk about your portfolio and, 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 and I'd love, like to touch, touch on that. So did you essentially buy your first property? Well, I guess just going back to what you mentioned, I can totally relate to that. I think, I think being coming here from a migrant family, first generation really struggle. You know, you saw, you said you saw your parents work. I was talking to, to one of the other guests previously who was also a migrant family. You see your parents work 12 hours a day and, and they're just sort of barely getting ahead. So I think that naturally instills something in you as a child to, to, to sort of strive to do better. But whereas, you know, I feel like if, if you grow up and your parents have quite a comfortable life and, and you have everything at the tip of your fingers, you probably... I should be careful how I say this, but you probably don't have the same drives and, and ambitions as, as someone that went through that sort of um, hardship sort of growing up with the family. So totally relate with that. Um, but in terms of your property portfolio, would you want to touch on what that is at the moment when you bought your first one and, 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 and yeah. Yeah, for sure. When I started, I actually didn't even have the intention of building a property portfolio. All I wanted to do was actually, you know, get my money to work harder and get ahead and the first property was an apartment in North Sydney. This was going back to 2013. Okay. I think I just landed my first full-time role at a corporate company. Yeah. And I was on around 70,000 base income. And at the time I was like, okay, that's a pretty decent pay rise from what I was on. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to invest into, into a property. And at the time, the only thing I could afford was apartments in Sydney. Yeah. And I didn't know to look interstate because interstate investing wasn't really spoken too much about back then. Sure. Yeah. So I got into the first property in North Sydney. It was a one-bedroom apartment, very small, 42 square meters. Okay. <laughs> Lending would have been tough. easy or tough? It was tough. Okay. It was tough to get very small apartments approved. So I actually had to go through two banks because the first one said, oh, it's too small. So I didn't actually even know that was a thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I ended up buying that property for four hundred twenty-eight thousand. Okay, in yeah. two thousand thirteen. Two thousand thirteen. And was that in like a in like a high rise or was it more boutique? Yeah, so it's a high rise apartment, and I again had no idea what I was doing because yeah. I'd done no research. I just knew North Sydney was a fairly safe area, yep. being in a city and also being in a, a pretty good employment hub. Yeah, and I just liked the look of it. Yeah, <laughs> to okay. be honest, <laughs> you still got that one now. Still have it. Okay, cool. And yeah. then where to from from that North Sydney purchase? So after that, I actually just kind of sat on the sidelines for about two to three years. Yep. Because I didn't know anything about property. I was just like, okay, I want to buy a property. And I was still living at home. And then after two years, I actually moved out of the apart- out of my parents' home and I moved into that North Sydney apartment. Okay. And then I kind of fell in love with renovating. And the reason is because my dad is quite handy and he does a lot of um, home, home stuff You know, at home. He's got a lot of equipment and tools. Yep. So on the weekend, he would just do a lot of gardening, do a lot of 
guess, renovating. And so I learned a lot of skills. Yep. So when I moved into the North Sydney apartment, I thought I, I want to try and spruce up this space because it was pretty old. It was a 1970s block. Okay. So internal was, was pretty old. Sure. So I thought, okay, well, I want to, if I'm going to live in this property, I want to try and spruce it up a little bit. Yeah. So I spent a little bit of money doing up the floorboards. So ripped the carpet out, put down, put down laminating floorboards. We took down some of the, the old curtains yeah. and put down a bit more modern um, Venetian blinds. Sure. Painted the property in throughout. Okay. We changed the lights to LED Did you do all this lights. yourself or you paid for trades? Mostly paid for trades, but some of the stuff I did myself. So painting all myself. The kitchen, what we did was we went to Bunnings and bought a, a splashback and did that ourselves with the help of a friend. Yeah. So a lot of the cosmetic stuff we did ourselves, but any trades where we required, we actually paid. Okay. And then turned out to be quite nice. I actually did a pretty good job. I spent, I think, just under $10,000. Like that's pretty cheap, cheap yeah. Renault. Yeah. Nice. And then I was exposed to the idea of releasing equity. and so Adding value to release value, equity, right? Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea what that was. I didn't even know what that meant. And I didn't even know you could actually go back to a bank and get a higher valuation. So when I found out that I could do that, I actually went back to my broker at the time and then he got a valuation done. It had gone up close to $70,000 in equity just from a 10,000 renovation. Wow. And mind you, this was when Sydney was actually climbing through a pretty a pretty nice boom at the time. But $70,000 on a $400,000 property, that's just under a 20%. Mm. Increase in equity, right? Yeah. So, so that's you know that's solid. Yeah, and going back to what we're talking about, like saving ten thousand dollars, you know, over a year yeah. when you when you could have done that through a small renovation, that was that was just an absolutely massive light bulb moment for me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, nice. And then went to the broker, pulled out the equity. Yeah. Where to from there? Then went to the second property. Okay. And that's that's where I got really excited because I was like, wow, this this equity thing is almost like magic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well it, it is right. Like <laughs> like you said, it's it's so hard to um it's so hard to save that money in, in a short amount of time. And and like imagine if you've got a two million dollar property portfolio and it goes up by ten percent, if you can show the banks that you can access that or access those funds, you know, eighty percent of that that they'll lend you. You can't average person is not going to save save that sort of money and and to think i say 20 percent because look at what's happened to the australian property market over the past two years right mm. cool so we went from north sydney renovation pulled the equity out and then went to property number two yeah so property number two was actually in queensland okay so we bought in a suburb called winham yep that nice. i actually came across a buyer's agent and uh they were able to help me nice. because i was priced out of sydney i guess i didn't really know better because i Bought in, bought in North Sydney and then the prices in Sydney actually boomed quite a lot. Okay. And I was still relatively on a, on a similar income. I think my income probably grown a little bit, yep. but not really enough for me to buy another property in Sydney. Sure. Or anything I was looking at was like six, 700K and I wasn't able to afford that. So When was this? What year? This would have been 2016. Okay. Yeah. So 2016, Sydney was doing pretty well. So I was pretty much capped in the Sydney market and I wasn't really looking outside of Sydney in terms of like more regional areas. I was just looking kind of Metro Sydney and everything yep. in there was, was out of my price range. Yeah. And I wanted to look at buying a house this time. I kind of learned, I was like, okay, I need to buy a bit more land. Yeah. Yeah. And with a house, I can do a bit more stuff to it. Right. Yeah. Whereas um, one thing I learned with uh, renovating an apartment, you have to get strata approval. Everything. That's, right. Yeah. It's a bit of a pain. Yeah. So, and you, you would have done very well buying in Wynnum in 2016 and, and, and I can only imagine what that's worth now. Right. 
Yeah, actually, I, I'm pretty surprised to be honest, because for many years it did nothing. For three three years, it probably would have done nothing, right? Yeah, I was 2016 thinking. to 2019. Yeah, yeah, you're spot on. Yeah. At that point, I was like, oh, I don't know if this was the right purchase because it just did nothing for a while. Yeah. But then what I realized is, is this is where you start to learn about property cycles. Yeah. Because it's usually, I think the growth usually happens in around 20% of the time frame, And then for the rest of that time frame, it, it can be stagnant. Yeah. So sometimes getting in at the right time, which is very hard to time, but what you need to realize is that timing of the cycle can actually happen towards when, when the market is quite flat, right? you can actually get a good deal because during that time it, it is you're basically paying the same price for what it was many years ago. hundred percent. We see that all the time and it is actually a bit unfortunate sort of for the previous owners, but we saw it happen in Brisbane where people would buy a property, someone would buy a property because, you know, with the tools like price finder and RP data, you can see when, who bought what property at what time you'd see someone bought a property in 2012 and the property would literally be the exact same price in 2019. It would not have changed. It, made, it might crazy. have even gone down slightly over those seven yeah. or eight years. And then someone will buy it in 2019. And then by 2021, it's almost doubled in value, at least the most recent boom in Brisbane, that's what's happened. So the previous owner would have held that property for eight years and it had no growth. They've sold it at the worst timing possible. And then the next owner has doubled their money in, in two or three years. Mm. We see that happen often, not double their, their value. That's quite rare what's happened in the past two years, mm. but we do see it happen all the time where that growth in the first two, three years of that cycle will far outweigh the 10 years prior. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing it happen in Perth at the moment. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, okay, cool. So you, you bought in Wyndham. Are you comfortable to share how much you bought that yeah, for? Yeah. So at the time I bought it for 515,000. It was a four bedroom house by two bathrooms. So four, four, two, two. Yep. And recent valuation on that property, I'm guessing it's around 900K. Yeah, so almost double in, how many years is that? 2016, so. Six years. Six years, yeah. And how much deposit did you put down? No cash, it was purely from equity. So I think I was able to take out about 60, 70K equity. Wow, so you've, you're yeah. still, the only cash you put down is the initial deposit on your North Sydney property, none of your own cash. And you've, let's just say, and for you guys, for you guys listening, let's just say, someone did put down a 10% deposit on that $500,000 property and that property is now worth a million dollars. I'm going to say a million because my maths isn't good enough for 900,000. <laughs> so let's just say a million bucks. You guys got to realize the power of property and the power of leverage. Off your $50,000 deposit, you've had a 10 times ROI. It's not just it's not just doubling the value of the property. It's on, if you did put, like in Jai's case, he didn't even put down any of his own cash. But if you did, you got to realize if that property goes up that much, it's on the cash that you've put down, you've had a 10 times ROI. So it's extremely hard to get that in other sort of asset classes. Uh, and I think property sort of enables you to do that because of the power of leverage. Yeah, I think that's that's a really, really important point because a lot of people look at ROI on the actual investment, right? But it actually should be on the cash that you put in. Yeah, especially yeah. if it's a neutrally geared property or a positively yeah. geared property, it's costing you nothing to hold on to. Yeah. So if it's negatively geared, then okay, you've got to take into consideration your holding costs. Mm. It's not costing you anything, then 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 you really just gotta look at the initial cash you put down. Yeah. Mate, so that's been a that's been a fantastic former. Uh where to from there? So what's it really interesting from my property portfolio is it kind of moves every two to three years. So every two to three years I do nothing and then I went to the next one. Okay. So at the time I had no strategy and 
I didn't really have the mentors that I needed at the time. So I was kind of just buying when I was ready to buy, like when I had the equity or had the cash, but I didn't really have a strategic or structured plan. Sure. I was just like, okay, I think at this point I'm ready to do something. Yeah. But I think if I went, if I look in hindsight, I kind of go back, I could have been a bit more aggressive. Yeah. But that's okay. We, we, all, we all learn. So after the, the Wynnum property, I somehow came back to Sydney and I bought another apartment in Brighton La Sands. Okay. Yeah. And this one was, was really because I started to see Sydney to take off again. Yep. Sydney was going, was pretty much booming all the way from 2010 to around 2019. Yep. It kind of slowed down, I think, towards the end of 2017 and started to pick back up. And I came across an apartment in Brighton La Sands, which is not too far from the water. Yep. Brighton Beach. Five, 10 minutes from the airport, yeah. very close to the city. Yeah. So this one was um, something that I just came across because it was it was on the market for a long time and it was very old, but in a very small, low-rise apartment block. Okay. I think in there's only about 12 apartments. Nice. And it had been on the market for a while. And I remember it was just after the election. A lot of properties were kind of just on the market. I've been watching this one for a while and no one, no one made offers. So I made an offer. It got accepted, 615000 and I did the same thing. I went in, did a renovation, pretty much exactly what I did with North Sydney. Yeah. Stripped out all the cosmetics, put new stuff in, freshened it up, able to lift the equity up by I think over 50,000. Straight also, after the reno. Yep, straight after the reno. And also the rental income went up from around 400 to 450 a week. Nice. Okay, yeah. nice, nice. That's, a, that's, that's, that's really solid sort of a 10... 10% increase in equity or just under a 10% increase in equity uh, and then an extra 50 bucks a week in terms of the rental return as well. And then what you guys got to realize as well in terms of re- doing the reno and increasing that rent by 50 bucks, it's not just the 50 bucks for the cash flow, it's the quality of the tenant you're going to get in. Because if you can charge a little bit higher, you're not going to get the tenants that can't afford it, who are generally going to be those who maybe a lower demographic or don't have secure jobs or whatever it might be. Mm. So we always tell clients it can be a vicious cycle. If you end up buying a property that, that needs work and then you don't do the work, you could get a lot of lower quality tenants in there who then, you know, doesn't pay or makes the place look even worse than what it is. And then it can go down a spiral. Mm. So I guess for you guys listening as well, that's the benefit of, of uh, doing that reno, providing a really good quality rental for a tenant who's happy to pay that price as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think sometimes you definitely attract a better quality tenant as well because yeah. the, the place is a bit more presentable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's right. Cool. So from Brighton. Yeah. So after Brighton, this was actually kind of at the peak of my career at my previous job because I was working full time in a corporate mm-hmm. and I came from a, a corporate marketing background. Yeah. And I'd worked for that company for about 10 years. Wow. And so I kind of got to a point where I really wanted to do something in the property space because I was, I was actually really, really passionate about property. I loved renovating and I just wanted to try and grow the portfolio a little bit more. Yeah. And I was getting close to capped at my borrowing capacity. And then I, then I came across a very uh, a good mortgage broker of mine who's actually who's become my mentor. Okay, and what year was this? This was 2019. Okay. Yeah. So a year after you bought Brighton? A couple of years after I bought Brighton. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So after that, I really wanted to try and get into the property space. And, and I, and I, at the time, didn't really think of where, what I wanted to do. Was that, you know, whether it be buyer's agency or get into a real estate agency or mortgage broking, I just, I knew I wanted to do something in property. Yeah. And I eventually went down the path of the finance route because I thought, okay, when you buy property, it all starts with finance and you need to understand where you're going and what you have in terms of resources. Yeah. So I, I really wanted to help people on their property journey. And that's how JD Capital was born. 
I, I was mentored by my um, mortgage broker who's been, who's been a really, really big part of my success. Yeah. He was able to show me how to structure the portfolio, how to get more lending. And I really wanted to do the same thing because I went through a couple of brokers as well and they were all quite transactional, able to get you the deal, move on, but really wasn't able to help you build out that strategy on how to build that portfolio. Yeah. And so I started JD Capital at the start, at the end of 2020. Cool. And we'll touch yeah. on, we'll t- and that's one of the reasons why we work closely together on a professional level. It's because of that strategy that gets created, which we find quite hard to do. Like one of the things our clients love is the plan that's put in place and then working with a broker that knows which tools you can use to get that plan put in place. So we'll touch on the professional side of things after we finish off. How many, pro- I don't even know how many properties you have. We might be going on for a while in terms of your property portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. We probably won't go through every single one because it'll probably take a while, but um, between me and my partner, we've got 11 properties across the country. Wow. How good's that? And that's across New South Wales, Queensland, and also WA. And in, in my personal portfolio, it's around seven properties. Well, you guys have done so good. Uh, well done. And yeah. you guys are, I mean, I should have probably, should, how, how, you guys are probably still going to be working for another 30 years. It's a polite way of saying sort of the, the age, but you guys are super young millennials. So for you guys to be able to do that at your age is, 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 is sort of, you know, it's very well done. So hats off to you. That's what has putting you into the finance space because of, I guess, the expertise that you've learned building up your own property portfolio. Are you, let's, let's touch on, before we get into the personal side of things, let's touch on if you're actively investing with the current climate and what your plans are at the moment in terms of the personal side of things. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think for me, I'm always actively looking into the market. I think there's opportunities in any market, particularly now, to be honest, because last year, if you think about what happened or last two years during the pandemic, there was very, very ease of liquidity, right? Like money almost was very cheap, like ridiculously cheap. Almost free. Yeah, almost free, right? So cash is cash was cheaper than inflation. So it's almost like you don't want to have cash. Yeah. So that's why a lot of the asset prices were booming. And that's why we saw a massive boom in real estate. Whereas this year it's now starting to 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 get tighter from a credit perspective. So it the market's pulling back a little bit. But I think that creates opportunities. And you'll see in a lot of different markets at the moment, we've got a lot of our mutual clients are buying in markets like South Australia, Western Australia and Queensland. Like yeah. those markets are growing very, very, uh, very well at the moment. So I think I'm always actively looking into the market. And more recently, we have made some purchases in Queensland and also in WA. Nice. Congratulations. Well yeah, done. Thank you. I think I think that's super important, super important for investors like as interest rates start going up, my sort of belief with and it's what we're seeing at the moment, as interest rates start going up, we're seeing the markets that have the highest amount of debt are the markets which are seeing the fastest correction or slowdown. We were, Mike was speaking to an agent for a property, Mike as our head buyer's agent, he was speaking to a, an agent for a property in South Australia last weekend, it had 52 offers on it. So that's, that's what's happening in South Australia at the moment. We missed out on a property in Perth because another buyer removed their building and pests and finance clauses. So there is this urgency in other states at the moment, which polar opposites to what's happening in Sydney. I know Sydney's Northern Beaches uh, it has, has dropped 15% across sort of, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20%, it has dropped. But for me, I, I think like you said, it, it creates opportunities. For me, that's a, so I'm, I'm, I've always been a rent vester, always wanted to rent vest. That's just, it just made sense. Growing a family, our perception of that has changed. We sort of want that stability and security now. Mm. And what we've seen is rents on the Northern beaches in the past 12 to 24 months skyrocket. Now we've seen house prices drop 15%. So 
it's really important as an investor to be able to pivot and be flexible to take advantage of any opportunities that arise. Mm. So if you're looking in Sydney, you might find some really good opportunities at the moment. If you're looking in sort of Perth and Adelaide, it's still definitely a seller's market, but you're going to experience that capital growth. So I think it's a matter of, I know you touched on it earlier, it's very hard to time the market, but if you know which cycle, which market is up to, Mm. you can sort of make a safe estimation there. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of listeners will learn this later on is that Australia is made up of so many markets, right? I remember when I first started investing, I didn't really know what that meant. They're like, you know, real estate, you just kind of see national figures, you know, real estate up or down. But then when you start to dig deep into the the micro figures, you start to see that there is actually a lot of different states. And then within the states, you've got capital cities. Then within the capital cities, you've got regional towns. And then within the suburbs, you've got good pockets and bad pockets, right? So there's so many different micro layers and within each market there's opportunities. Yeah, exactly. That's right. It's just about finding those opportunities. I 100% agree with you. So in terms of, let's talk about, obviously you've got experience. You guys have built a a very, very strong property portfolio. So you've obviously got experience in terms of how to utilize the best lenders to do that. And this is obviously what you do day in, day out for your clients and our mutual clients. Let's Let's talk about how a good mortgage broker can utilize different lenders to get clients the outcome that they need because often we find people obsess about interest rates and interest rates to me at this stage in my investing career is completely irrelevant. Let's touch on how different lenders can help you in different ways. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Uh, really good conversation to talk about because I think a lot of people get fixated on the rates and that should probably be at the lower priority. Obviously rates is very important when it comes to affordability, but there's so many different options out there that can help you. And I think when choosing a mortgage broker, there's many great brokers out there. And I think it's really important to, firstly, if you're investing in property, make sure they're aligned to your goals and they've been able to do it themselves as well, because they'll be able to relate and also help you do, you know, achieve similar outcomes. 100%. And a good mortgage broker should ask you what your long-term goals are, because the lending space is quite complex and it can change quite quickly. So knowing how to structure your loans and knowing how this purchase is going to affect the next purchase can be really important to plan. It, I find when you're building a property portfolio, you really need to take into account future planning because yep. serviceability, which is a fancy term for borrowing capacity, is a very finite resource. It's limited, right? Yep. Every person is capped by their income. So you only have so much borrowing capacity. Let's say your borrowing capacity is 600000 and you're on 100 k income. Yeah. You want to know how that 600k uh, borrowing capacity can be used towards your purchases. And, and I think that's really important to understand from a lending perspective, because that can then help you dictate which strategy you go and also which properties you then look at. Yeah. So what we do, and this is why we love working with, with you as well, is because essentially you'll create a strategy for a client. That client will come to us, tell us how much money they can borrow then we know exactly what kind of rental returns we need to achieve from property number one and what growth expectations we need to try achieve from property number one, which will put our clients in the best position and increase that probability for them to leverage into property number two. Then if we know exactly how much rental yield or rental return we need based off a purchase price and we know how much growth the market needs to have, then we have access to the data to say, okay, well, this suburb in Adelaide at the moment is going to achieve the numbers that we need, or this suburb in Perth will achieve the numbers that we need. And I think I think 90% of investors get stuck at one or two properties and it's because they're not planning any of this at the very beginning, right? Mm, yeah, it's definitely spot on. 
And I think when you're building a property portfolio, it's it's important to use uh, multiple lenders. And I'll, I'll kind of touch on this a little bit. In, in the lending space, there's, I would classify there's about three tiers of banks. So you've got tier one banks, which are like the major banks that everyone knows, your Combanks, ANZ, and Westpacs of the world. Yep. Then you've got your tier two banks. So these are more like your digital banks. So like think of like Ubank, Bankwest, ING, yeah, MeBank, those sort of banks. Sure. Then you've got your tier three lenders. So tier three lenders are like non-banks. So these are your non-conforming banks like ResiMac, FirstMac, Pepper Money, Liberty, Bluestone. Yeah. So there's, right. there's a few of them. There's a lot. Okay. Yeah. So in Australia, I think there's over 40 different banks. So there's so many different banks to choose from. And most of these smaller banks are only accessible via brokers because these banks don't have your standard, your retail banks, right? So. Sure. It's important to use a series of different banks. And, and from what I've discovered and also building my own portfolio and helping a lot of our clients is that you, you generally want to use the major banks first because they're hardest to borrow from. So you go to those banks, you max out your borrowing capacity. Yep. Then when you go to the tier twos and tier threes, if you structure correctly, you can actually get more lending out. And coming back to your point around interest rate, what you'll find is the major banks are usually the lowest Yep. Right, because they're your they're your major banks, but they're harder to borrow from. So that's why it's important to use them first. Yeah, and then as you as you get squeezed in terms of borrowing capacity, it's basically a trade off. You pay a little bit of a higher rate, but you get way more serviceability. And what's yep. more important when it comes to building a portfolio, you want you want growth, right? You want to yep. increase your asset base. So when you can buy another two or three properties with a second tier bank, and you're only paying 05 percent of a difference. It's like opportunity costs of money, right? You pay a little bit more rate, but you can go borrow money to go buy another three properties that are compounding at five, six percent. Yeah. So you're basically, you know, paying what an extra one or two K and you're able to grow your portfolio by what two, three hundred K a year in terms of capital growth. hundred percent. So the way I see it is is it's the cost of doing business. Now if, if it's if it's gonna cost me an extra percent to do business, but I can buy an extra two properties, uh, so be it. I know it's gonna be the extra two properties that will enable me to retire not the uh, extra two, $3,000 a year in, in interest that I'll have to pay. Obviously, the caveat to that is don't go out unnecessarily and get yourself into unnecessary amount of debt. Uh, you need to make sure that you can make those repayments and you need to plan for future inc- interest rate increases and, and all that sort of stuff. But I guess the point here is, is, is what Jai is saying is there are so many other alternatives. So, so in terms of third-tier lenders, do they not have a debt-to-income ratio? Yeah, that's a very good question. So most of the major banks will use something called DTI, which is your debt to income ratio. Yeah. And as a general rule of thumb, it's six to seven times your income. For the majors. Yeah. yeah. So if you're on a hundred thousand dollar income, as an example, and you're and you're single and you've got no debts, then you can borrow around six to seven hundred thousand. Yeah. Once you hit that, you're basically capped. So if you go to a tier two or tier three bank and you've set up your loans correctly on the on the first loan, they look at cash flow. So if your cash flows are quite strong, and when I say cash flow, they look at your ability to repay on the next loan. So what I find is if you structure your first couple of investment properties on interest only, your repayments are a lot lower than principal and interest, right? So when you go to the second tier lender, they will look at your actual repayments on the property and then your ability to repay on the next property. Will they look at your repayments based off interest only or will they assume that you're going to have to do principal and interest at some stage? They look at just interest only, which wow. is why using these lenders can be very, very powerful because yeah. they, they look at your ability to repay the property presently. Yeah. So okay. 
the main the main thing that you just need to be aware of is that you need to be able to have the cash flow to sustain that portfolio going forward. Yeah. So if you're buying the right types of properties like cash flow neutral or positive properties, then you're actually in a better cash flow position. That's why these second tier or third tier lenders will lend you the money. Yeah, okay, interesting. And and, and that's 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 so true what you just said in terms of your property having enough cash flow will allow you to enable you to leverage into future properties. Sort of that's one of the first things we tell our clients we only ever do unless it's through a partner who a financial advisor, for example, where the brief is a negatively geared property, then we can go out and find it. But for any other client that comes to us, it's always positively geared because that's going to add to your serviceability for future properties. Mm. So in terms of, so we already, so yeah, so I mean, that's, that's really important for the listeners to know. Top tier lenders have that debt to income ratio of six to 7%. Second and third tier lenders have no debt to income ratio. Yeah. What about in terms of deposit size? How does that go with second and third tier lenders? Yeah. So generally speaking, when you look at how a lot, traditionally people used to do 20% deposit, right? Like 10 years ago, back when property prices were a bit lower. Yeah. Now it's almost impossible for the average person to save a 20% deposit, unfortunately. So I've been seeing a lot more people take up lenders mortgage insurance. So LMI is basically an insurance for the bank, similar to car insurance. You know, yep. we, we pay car insurance to cover ourselves and also people if they get hurt. Yep. Same thing. Banks have LMI because they want to cover themselves if you can't repay the loan. So yeah. generally speaking, when you borrow above 80%, there is LMI. So what you'll find is when you go higher LVR, the LMI becomes more exponentially expensive. Yeah. But when you graph the figures out, the sweet spot is actually around 88 to 90% LVR. It's like a 12% deposit. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have a 10 to 12% deposit, that is ideal. Yeah. And if you're buying an investment property, the LMI expense can be negatively geared as well because it becomes a tax deduction. Okay. So I find a lot of investors are more open to doing a 10 to 12% deposit. Yeah. But to your question, there are lenders out there that will go up to 95% LVR on investment properties. Second, second and third tier lenders or second tier, top, yeah. top tiers wouldn't? Majors, no. Okay, so you can still you can still use a second. I mean, we're not we're not condoning unnecessary debt levels. Um, so again, don't don't go don't go stupid with this. But there are lenders out there that you can do a deposit less than twenty percent, and they don't look at your debt to income ratio as long as you can prove to the banks that you can service those loans. Yeah, that's right. So that's really powerful. If you guys are sort of capped in terms of your serviceability, go speak to a, a sort of a good broker who has access to these kinds of lenders, and they can really sort of help you scale that property portfolio. If you guys have heard people that have five, six, seven, ten properties it is an extremely high probability that they've done so through second and third tier lenders, not just your top sort of your big, your big four banks. So just be mindful of that guys. Another thing I wanted to touch on, and it's extremely relevant for now with the current climate, because we are hearing a lot of people, we are, are seeing a lot of clients or prospects who are saying, I just want to wait for the interest rates to go up to see what happens. And then we say, well, if the interest rates go up, you can't actually borrow the same amount of money you can now. Is there a general rule of thumb which you can guide us on in terms of for every 1% increase in interest rate, is there a general rule as to how much one an average person would lose in serviceability? Yeah, to, to give you an example, if someone's on a $100,000 income, and I use this example because it's easy to calculate. Yeah. So if someone's on a $100,000 income, assuming they're single, if the interest rate goes up 1%, their borrowing capacity will drop by about 50 to 60,000. So okay. not a huge amount, but obviously if you're already at the, close to the maximum capacity that you are, then yes, that's going to squeeze you out of the out of the buying a property. But if you don't have any existing debts, not really going to 
create too much of an issue. 50 to 60K shouldn't really cause you any, any problem to get into the property market, depending obviously where you're looking at as well. Okay, cool. That's what, that's important for you guys to, to, listen, to think of as well, because history tells us that when interest rate goes up, the whole market doesn't come crashing down. It's the markets that have the highest amount of debt. They drop off 10, 20% and then stagnate for a while. The RBA's role is not to have the whole house of cards to come crumbling down. They literally just propped up the housing market for two years. So it doesn't do that. So it's not going to happen now. For those of you sort of um, listening in here, for every, if, as, as I said, not all markets are going to come correct as the interest rates go up. Some markets will still increase as they have been doing in Perth and Adelaide. So if you wait till the end of the year to get into the Perth market, you'll be able to borrow less money than you can today, but that property is also going to be more expensive than it is today, most likely. So it's sort of a, a double-edged sword there. So just have a think about that um, if you are sort of waiting to, to, to pull that trigger. All right, cool. I think we've unpacked a lot of gold here and added a ton of value for those those who are those who are listening in terms of top tips for investors i mean you're an investor yourself you speak to investors all the time you're helping them get into the market uh, what would your top tips be at the moment uh, for investors i think definitely build a good team around you and when i say team all of the people within the industry that help towards a property purchase and that could be a buyer's agent that knows the market very well, a good broker because finance, it all starts with finance and it really is a game of finance because if you can't get the finance, you can't get into the property. So understanding the finance part is really, really important. The other one is having a really good tax accountant I find quite good as well because you can then understand what you can claim, how you can maximize some of that negative gearing, which helps with cash flow. Yeah. Because in the current environment, the most important thing is cash flow. If you can sustain the cash flow and continue building the portfolio, even in an interest rate rising environment, you'll actually come out better. 100%. And we, we speak to clients all the time who, who have come to us and said, oh, my broker said they can't access, I can't access any more money. And then you introduce them to another broker and then they can. So if one broker said, you know, you're, you're capped out, it doesn't mean you are, uh, go get a second, second or third opinion. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to share for the listeners? I think the other piece of advice that really, really helped me is understanding the numbers. So when you're buying a property, doing a cash flow spreadsheet is actually gold because it actually helps you understand what you're actually purchasing into a property, right? And really at the end of the day, it's about the figures. If you can calculate based on all the rental income coming in and then all of your expenses going out, including the, the bank repayments, then you work out you know, at the end of the day what your net bottom line is. When you understand that figure and then you can actually buffer in, you know, additional repayments when it comes to the interest, uh, interest going up, that gives you a lot more comfort knowing what you can afford and whether if that property is actually going to help you perform. Because if it's, if it's positively geared and it's giving you $300, you know, extra surplus per month, interest rate goes up by 0.5%, you're still positively geared after the increase. You know, it's a pretty out, good outcome. So understanding those figures is actually really, really powerful and it helps people make better decisions. 100%. We are, we, we, for anyone looking to buy a property, you, you need to know exactly what your net numbers are. Uh, we, 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 we're very, very diligent on that. You, you don't want to just be given the gross numbers and the gross cash flow at the end of the year because like so often you end up in the negative. The property might be $20,000 a year, $30,000 a year cash flow positive gross. And then after all your expenses, you end up being $5,000 a year sort of in the red. And, and, and if that happens, you know, you're very limited to how many properties you can buy. So you've got to be very diligent on your numbers. Mate, so that's, that's a ton of value. Is, is there anything else you want to share with the listeners? 
That's it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Thanks cool, for having man. me. Mate, thanks a lot for coming on. I think the listeners gained uh, a lot of value. For those guys listening, if they want to reach out and, uh, and, and, and inquire about their serviceability or take their portfolio to the next level, where can they find you? Uh, the best place to find us is on our website. So just go to jdcapitaloz.com.au. And you're, you guys are pretty much famous on Instagram as well. <laughs> Not <laughs> so, famous to you guys. <laughs> we see you all over there. So you guys, you guys will find them. We'll obviously tag, um, tag Jai and JD Capital across, um, across the platforms when we do post this podcast. Uh, but thanks a lot for listening, guys, and thanks for coming in, Jai. Thanks, mate. Appreciate see you later. It. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Lazy Equity Podcast. The advice given on this podcast is of a general nature only, and you should make your own decisions before taking any financial risks. If you would like to stay in touch with the show, join the Lazy Equity Facebook group or find the Investors Agency on Instagram and Facebook.